If anybody knows what we're about to read, you know that we're in for an interesting time. But this is the Word of God. So let me go ahead and read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, that that's her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious... We have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. If you want to follow along on the sermon outline in the bulletin, I'm not going to read the paragraph long sermon theme. I'll let you read that to yourself. But I do think that it unpacks the sermon. You know, when we read this, I think our first response is, what in the world is Paul saying? I mean, this, this is recognized as one of the most difficult passages, not only to interpret, but to translate, first of all. There are just a lot of translation difficulties to get us our English translation. And then, and then to understand. Uh, it's just a difficult passage. There's a lot of stuff going on here. But the question that we have to ask before we ask, what in the world is Paul saying is, what in the world is going on in the church in Corinth? Because that's what drives what Paul is saying. That's, that's what Paul is responding to. It's what shapes his answer the way that it's shaped. And as we begin chapter 11, we begin a new section in the letter that goes from chapter 11 all the way through chapter 14, in which Paul is addressing the worship gathering. So now we're talking about things that happen in the worship gathering. Think of your Sunday morning Lord's Day worship service. And he begins with the topic of head coverings. He moves to the topic of the Lord's Supper, and then onto the topic of spirit gifts, or grace gifts, as he calls them. And he has a goal in mind, which he states at the very end of, of this section, in verse 40 of chapter 14. He says, but all things should be done decently and in order. That's Paul's understanding of the tradition of worship in the Christian church. Things should be done decently and in order. So, something about head coverings has to do with decent and orderly worship in the church in Corinth when she gathers. That's helpful. 
that helps us to understand how to think about what Paul is saying in chapter 11, verses 2 to 16. We also have some other helps. We have some practice already, you and I, in approaching Paul's letter and what he writes. Sometimes what seems to be the important matter isn't always the important matter. Addressing how the Christians in Corinth were to navigate the cultural issue of eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols was important, but what was really important was what was tied to the heart issues. The heart issues that he taught from that were, do not harm your brother or sister if they have a weaker conscience. Do not be puffed up in knowledge, but build up one another in love. Though you are free from all, become a servant to all. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Don't seek your own good, but seek the good of your neighbor. And whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Those were the important things that came out of the controversy about eating meats offered to idols. See, so we're prepared already a little bit to approach this passage realizing that there's probably more here than meets the eye. And we've seen over and over again that the Corinthians have a problem with appropriating values and means from the pagan culture around them, bringing them into the church and corrupting the church at that point. They've done it over and over and over again. They preferred expert, eloquent speakers, which corrupted their understanding of God's gifted teachers to them. They sought the wisdom of men, which God says devalues the cross and devalues Christ crucified. They boasted in themselves when everything they had received was from God. It was not even of themselves. Their pride and desire for greatness, especially spiritual greatness, corrupted their ability to even discern sexual immorality among them. And in their arrogance, they handed over the judgment of petty disputes to pagan judges in public courts. They did these things. We see them. And all of this culminates, remember, with Paul saying last week, stop living for yourselves and live for others. Stop seeking your own good and seek the good of others. This is how you do all to the glory of God, because that's how Christ lived. That's how Paul gets us to this point in the end of chapter 10. In every errant situation in the church, Paul corrects the corruption and points the church to Jesus Christ and the glory of God, right? That's what he does. So we can expect that he's going to do a similar thing here. But what are we to make of heads and head coverings? What are we to make of long hair and shaved hair? And angels, for Pete's sakes, where did that come from? While we do not know, because we're not told, precisely what these Corinthians are doing in their worship gathering, we do have, from good biblical and historical research, scholarship, some idea of the Greco-Roman cultural issues that would come to bear in this realm, that would bear on this church at this time. And I want to list three of them so you can just kind of hear them. The first one's this. When the pagans in Corinth gathered for worship in the many pagan temples in the city, they were led by pagan priests who were men of high social status. And when they led the church in prayer, they would cover their heads with part of their toga. They would take, would take a, a flap of the clothing and put it over their heads. They would cover their heads, these pagan priests. That's what happened in the culture. So if a man stood in the Christian congregation to lead prayer and covered his head, he would be mimicking the pagan priests, drawing attention to himself and his elite social status. 
He would be bringing honor to his own head rather than to Christ who is head over him. And so Paul says, stop doing that. There's a second cultural issue. The general custom of the day was for women to cover their heads. They would wear a hood or maybe a scarf, of some type, sometimes a veil, a light see-through veil. And this would communicate modesty and chastity. Now this was especially expected for married women, that they would go out in public this way. It was, it was cultural dress for those things. A married woman would cover her head in public to communicate her submission to her husband and in a way that honored her husband who has a headship in their marriage relationship. A woman wearing some sort of head covering signaled that she's not available. Okay, it's a stop sign, right? While a woman whose hair flowed free signaled she was available. That's how things were perceived. So when we read about the husband's headship in marriage and the wife's submission to the husband's headship in Ephesians chapter 5, that sounds very positive. But it's not positive to our culture, is it? Our culture completely rejects biblical complementarianism. But Paul writes a very positive, uh, very positively of a wife who respects her husband and a husband who loves her as Christ loves the church. Here, not in Ephesians, but here in Corinthians, Paul's words feel kind of negative, kind of forceful. Why? Because he's correcting the church. And correction always kind of sounds a little negative to us. Uh, he's writing to recover, pun intended, recover headship that has been mislaid. Historians have evidence. Here's the third thing about Corinthian culture. Historians have evidence of, a, of, of what we might call a women's liberation movement at this time. Greco-Roman culture, we've talked about this, had always allowed for husbands, married men, to be sexually promiscuous, but not wives. So, so the culture, some of the women of higher status were, began to throw off that cultural expectation, and, and, and when they did that, they threw off their head coverings as well. They were flaunting what they considered to be a freedom by letting their hair down in public. And that, that connection was, had to do with social prom, or sexual promiscuity. So you see what, they're, see what they're thinking when they see a woman who should be wearing a head covering, not wearing a head covering. You see the connection. Some women in the church were asserting themselves in the church. They were stepping into men's roles in the worship gathering and uncovering their heads to show their independence from their husbands. But, unintentionally, it also removed the sign of their modesty and their chastity in that culture. And people perceived that. So they were dishonoring their husband's headship and dishonoring themselves and dishonoring Christ's headship. All in the context of a worship gathering in the act of prayer. And so Paul says, stop doing that. Another way to get a grasp on this difficult test is just to look at the, the beginning and the end. Look at the bookends. At the beginning in verse 3, Paul tells us what he wants to know. He gives us the big idea, the takeaway. This is what this passage is all about. What I want you to understand is that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. 
and the head of Christ is God. That's how we know that this passage at its core is about headship in the Christian life, which should also be represented in the Christian worship service when the church gathers. Skip down all the way to the end in verse 16, and Paul says that there is no room in the church, particularly in the gathered worship of the church, for anyone to be contentious. We do not practice a worship that divides, but a worship that unites. We do not practice a worship that severs headship. We worship in a way that reflects our submission to God's rightful order and authority. Those are some things that I hope should, maybe some categories to kind of put this text uh, in a little clearer view. And I'm just going to tell you right up front, this is not a, this is not a text I want to walk through and, and try to develop the answer to. I just want to give you the answers right up front. <laughs> it's confusing. And so I'm just telling you right up front, in hopes of simplifying and clarifying my explanation of this difficult passage, three things that I believe Paul is addressing that are all about headship, woven into the cultural symbolism of head coverings. One, Paul is addressing men in the church whose use of head coverings contends with Christ, who is their rightful head. Two, Paul is addressing women in the church whose non-use of head coverings contends with their husband's rightful headship in marriage, and in that way they also contend with Christ. And three, Paul is addressing a third, I believe, unintended consequence. In the corruption of their roles in the gathered worship service of the church, men are not acting like men. And women are not acting like women, which contends with God in his creation of them, male and female, in his image. Those are the three things that this passage addresses. With that introduction, I hope we're ready to work our way through this text and walk away with the understanding of biblical headship and a lack of contentiousness that the Apostle Paul expects to characterize our gathered worship. So look down in verse 2. Paul commends the church. Paul commends the congregation for everything, which is just a little bit of a head-scratcher, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's an appropriate way, though, grammatically, for him to transition and reset the discussion to focus on issues of the gathered church. And he plays off of it. It's useful to him. He plays off of it to show where they're not maintaining the principles for worship that he's taught them. First with head coverings, then with the Lord's Supper, then with grace gifts. Uh, beginning now particularly with, with submitting to rightful headship. They're not quite getting it right there. And then Paul prioritizes biblical headship. So what is this word? What is biblical headship? What is headship? Well, headship exists in relationships. That's where we see it. One in the relationship has authority, and the other is to voluntarily submit to that authority. So it, it works in the context of relationships. The head has the authority that, that fits his role or responsibility. The other submits to their head to accomplish God's will because this is God's ordering of relationships. Ephesians 5 is a good place to see this. A master is the head of a servant, and the servant is to obey the master. 
Parents exercise headship over their children. Children are to obey their moms and dads. Now, because it's relational, it, it, it shifts and morphs to meet the relationship. It's not the word obedience that is used with husbands and wives, but, but submission to headship. Wives, unlike their children, are not called to obey every command of their husband, but to submit to his headship, to honor and respect him in Ephesians chapter 5. Just as her husband is called to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So we know what this headship thing is. Headship does not in any way alter anyone's value as a person. A husband is not of greater value to God because he's the head of his wife. A wife is not of lesser value to God because she submits to her husband's headship in this one flesh marriage relationship. Now, pagans may think that. Christians don't because that's not true. Paul knows this, and he's not saying anything to change this. We understand this as believers. We understand that Christ is our head. He has rightful authority over us, and we joyfully submit to Him for salvation. And we don't want to change that. And even Jesus knows that headship is not a value judgment. It's a matter of assigned roles in a relationship. The head of every man is Christ. The head of every wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Christ has a head that is another, not himself. The Father and the Son are both equally God. Somebody say amen. And yet Christ submits to God as his rightful head within this Trinitarian relationship. And in this way, God and Christ and the Spirit accomplish the will of God, accomplish the work of God. This is the triune God's way of ordering things for our salvation and for our flourishing, our eternal happiness. So then in verses 4 and 5, Paul identifies the problem. Let me go ahead and read that again. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut off her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let your head be covered. The problem in the church is not headship. The problem is that when the church in Corinth gathers, there are a few in the church who do not reflect proper headship and submission. That's the rub. That's where things don't look like they should look. This is a, another in what seems to be a long line of examples where a few in the church have grabbed hold of worldly values, brought them inside of the church, and are corrupting their service to God, praying and prophesying, their service to God in their worship gathering. A few men are dishonoring Christ by covering their heads when they pray and prophesy in the worship service. You see how the Greco-Roman culture has creeped into the church in their behavior. A few of the women are dishonoring their husbands by not covering their heads when they pray and prophesy in the church gathering, which raises a question, should women be prophesying in the church gathering? Another question, what is prophesying? Thankfully, those are uh, questions for sermons for another day. 
Paul is going to address those, and we're going to address those along with him in chapter 14 when we get there. But one ecclesiological disaster at a time is enough for us. And so there are just a few things I want you to notice before we move on. This passage, and remember the one on married and unmarried people, widows and widowers, people married to unbelievers. Remember that? This passage and that one, the one on married and single people, are often used to bash Paul. We talked about this before. They bash him as a misogynist promoting strict patriarchalism. He's an apostle from the He-Man Woman Haters Club. And it's just not true. Paul makes sure that he's addressing both men and women, just as before. The mutuality of, of married and unmarried, widow and widower. He, he, everything was mutual with men and women. He wasn't just scolding one or the other. He's upholding the gospel rules for both. He's actually treating women as equal in value with men in the church, and that's opposite of what his culture says. He's upholding marriage and the beauty and value of the one flesh relationship. And he's upholding biblical gender roles. Men and women are created equal. Women do not have to become men to have value. Both men and women have value because they are each created in God's image and each bear God's likeness in the world that he created. Hebship is not a matter of value, it's a matter of role. You know, it's not as if it's not as if like, you know, when we had the, uh, yesterday morning in the evangelism training, we had a little Q&A thing. It's not as if somebody just said, Paul, we're going to give you a few topics and give you some time to answer. First topic, head coverings. You have 20 minutes. Tell us what you think. I think Paul would probably say some wonderful things. It would be very helpful and clear and understandable. But that's not what's happening here. Paul is writing to recover biblical headship, which is knotted up in the cultural meaning of head coverings to address a specific problem in this specific church. And that's why we get the answer written the way that we get the answer. Because that's what he's addressing. So we have to try to untie this knot and hopefully, hopefully, clarify the issues. So here's Paul recovering rightful authority in the worship services. And, and I want to pick up in verse 7 I'm, I'm going to do this. I want to do the men first because it's a little easier uh, to get that out of the way and then deal with some of the other, some of the other aspects. So in, in verse 7, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. Because Christ is the head of every man, a man should not cover his head when he stands to pray and prophesy in the church. Why? Because he looks like one of the pagan priests in the pagan temples, prancing around, drawing attention to himself, being puffed up, exalting his own stature, rather than exalting Christ, who is his head. That's why. There are, there are two ways to look at the wording, two ways to look at this picture, and they're, they're both right. They both get to the right place. When a man covers his physical head this way, he dishonors his spiritual head. Who is Christ? It's the first way to understand this teaching. The other way to look at it is to say that, the, that if a man's head is Christ, because he just said a man's head's Christ, if a man's head is Christ, then by covering his head, he's literally covering Christ. He's hiding, he's obscuring Christ, who is his head, and whose headship should be apparent to all, not hidden or covered. Isn't it interesting? 
that for several chapters now, Paul has been teaching us to think of others. Paul has been teaching us to serve others. We are to do all things to the glory of God. And now he says, you're not your own head. Your head is actually another. And you need to submit to that another. Who is your rightful authority? Who is your head? Who is Jesus Christ? Glorify Him. Do everything to the glory of God. Submit to the headship of Jesus Christ. To the glory of God. Get it? See it? I'm getting a few nods. I'm going to run with that. Paul is reclaiming and restoring the honoring of rightful headship in worship that these men had foolishly lost sight of. Because they got a little puffed up. We back up just a couple verses too. Wives honoring their husbands, beginning in verse 5. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her head be covered. Because her husband is the head of the wife, wives should cover their heads if they stand to pray and prophesy in the church. Why? Because if she doesn't, she looks like a loose woman. I mean, you look at her and you say, I know she's married, but then you go home and you look at her Facebook account and it says open relationship. Right? That's what she's saying. By not covering her head, she's communicating that she does not recognize her husband's headship in her marriage. And in this way, she brings dishonor upon her husband. And in dishonoring her husband, she dishonors Christ. Because Christ is the one who established her husband's headship based on himself and his headship over the church. We're back to Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verse 5 again. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uh, uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. What does it mean when you see a woman with a shaved head in Corinth? It's, it's a symbol of adultery. Yeah. They, didn't, they didn't have to stone the woman to death, but they shaved her head if she committed adultery. So there's that link in culture as to what this looks like, what this means, what this symbolizes. So Paul, what Paul does is he throws down a bit of a verbal challenge. This is Paul with maybe sarcasm or extreme hyperbole, whichever you prefer. He says to these ladies who are taking off their hats, look, if you're going to present yourself as a loose woman by letting down your hair in public, why not just go all the way and shave your head? I mean, if you want to make a statement, just, just do it. Make the statement. Because that's what you're communicating by doing this. It's hyperbole. If a shaved head is disgraceful, then don't wear loose hair, which is also disgraceful, but cover your heads. The point is that by not covering their heads, they were making a statement of independence and rebellion against God's given headship. In shaming their husbands, they were also shaming themselves and ultimately shaming Christ. And then to, to make this understandable, Paul gives reasons. Reasons for the grounding of his thinking here. Now, Paul has already offered a theological reason 
why this is so, which is the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. We want to understand matters of gender roles or gender and roles within marriage. If we want to understand that, we don't look to man and we don't look to culture. We look to God. The answers to those questions are found in God. The son is not inferior to the father, right? Even though the son submits to the father. Neither a wife inferior to her husband, although she submits to her husband's headship. In submitting to her husband, she brings honor to her husband, just as Christ brings honor to the Father. And in this way, wives, you bring honor to Christ. Paul's already offered that. Now he offers a, a second reason that reasons from creation in verses 7 to 9. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For a man was not made from a woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is a clear reference to Adam and Eve in the garden. God created Adam from the dust of the earth. God saw that Adam shouldn't be alone. So God created Eve from Adam's side to be his companion and his helper. So Eve was created from Adam and for Adam. That's what Paul is saying here. Not to be subservient to Adam, but to help him to serve God. Remember in, in uh, Genesis chapter 1, God blessed them, them, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and to have dominion over his creation. So man has priority in that God created him prior to creating woman. And a wife brings honor to her husband by helping him to serve God. But... The reverse is also possible. A wife can bring dishonor to her husband. Remember, Eve stepped into Adam's role. She decided she would have a conversation with the snake, and she took the fruit from the tree and ate it. And in that way, she brought shame to Adam. Of course, Adam let her didn't he? Adam stepped out of his role. Adam should have crushed the head of the blasphemous snake. But he abandoned his role and dishonored God who was his head. Even though Eve sinned first, we all sin because of Adam. And so Paul says, says this in verse 10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Help me out here, Paul. I mean, come on. This thing is tangled enough, and then, you know, angels fly in from out of the blue. Actually, there, there are two really simple ideas here in this verse, and, and I'll take the angels first. Angels remind us that Paul is addressing the context of worship. In Hebrews chapter 22, we're told that when we gather in worship, we come to innumerable angels gathered in decent and orderly worship. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we're told that our gospel worship is a thing into which even angels long to look. And in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet sees the heavenly throne room of God surrounded by angels 
who cover their faces and cover their feet with their wings as they speak words of worship to God. Holy, holy, holy. So the context of the gathered worship of the church is what Paul continues to have in mind throughout this passage and all the way to the end of chapter 14. And because Paul has grounded his wife's, excuse me, the wife's, somebody didn't want to create new history there, uh, the wife's submission to her husband as head, she should wear a symbol of that authority on her head. She should present herself visibly as one under her husband's headship. Now, this may be the place to, to notice something I think is kind of important. Uh, you know, Paul seems to be shifting or sliding effortlessly between woman and wife. Woman and wife. And I think he means to do that. Now, while not every woman is a wife, the idea of headship and humility and service to God applies to them both. There's something, there's something here for everyone, really. Women who are not married still come under the some form of headship, some form of biblical headship. Every believer who gathers to worship is under the headship of Christ. Every believer who gathers in a church is under the headship of the elders in that church. If maybe it's a young single woman who's living at home, she, she is under the headship of her father still. There, there's lots of headship that we fall under. And then in verses 11 to 12, we see that Paul gives reasons from the gospel. Pick up in verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Paul's basically saying right out loud, don't misunderstand me. Don't get the wrong idea. In the Lord, in the gospel, in Christ's church, Men and women are equal in Christ. And we are interdependent. There's a mutuality among us. Only one woman, Paul says, Eve, was made from man. But every man since Adam has been born of a woman, including our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are distinctly different. And we're to remain distinctly different and we're to remain in unity with one another in the gospel. There is no he-man, woman-haters club in the church. You cannot use Paul's words to condone male dominance or justify abuse of any kind. In fact, he says there is to be no contention, no contentiousness between men and women in the church, not between genders, men and women, not between married couples, husband and wife, because there's no reason for there to be. Contention would be baseless. Love and unity would be grounded. Paul teaches that in the gospel there is no longer male or female, right? We're all in the same salvation, but he doesn't erase gender with that. That's a, that is a everyone's in the same in the gospel comment. But we remain distinct in gender. And we have been assigned different roles. That's what Paul's highlighting. That's what Paul's highlighting. And, and notice, 
only after grounding us in reasons from theology and from creation and from the gospel does Paul finally get around to what we want him to get around to, and that is reasons from culture. Wait, this is, we've been waiting for this part the whole sermon. This has been the most boring sermon up to now. We finally got to the point I want to hear. And we look at it in verses, beginning in verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering? Judge for yourselves. Use your plain old, everyday, common sense and experience without, should a wife pray in public, in the public gathering without her head covered? You who are in Corinth. Without the symbol of her headship before the angels. When a wife does that, do you see a woman who's honoring her husband in Corinth? If you bring your unbelieving Roman friend to church, does he see a woman who honors her husband and honors Christ? And we haven't forgotten the men. The men who are covering their heads and honoring themselves instead of Christ, are they seeking the good of others? Do they know that their head is actually another? Now, we are not bound by culture. I mean, all of the letter of Corinthians so far tells us that. But we can't ignore culture or pretend it doesn't exist because we live within a society. We live within culture. We have to understand that there are cultural markers that communicate things. Paul doesn't say nature. He doesn't mean you know, the furry woodland creatures and trees and grass. The natural way we do things, our customary way of behaving, teaches us that in Paul's day, Men had short haircuts. This is Rome, or this is Roman territory. Uh, Corinth is a Roman city in Greece. There couldn't be anything more Greco-Roman than that. Men had short haircuts. Women had long hair. So if you if you do the opposite, what are you communicating? He makes an analogy. Didn't God give women long hair? Because it's fitting for them to have a covering. And your culture follows suit by expecting women or wives to, to wear a covering. You know, even if you're free to eat meat sacrificed to idols, but don't for the sake of others and your gospel witness, even if you're free to let your hair down, but don't for the sake of others and for the gospel. There's something of greater importance yet to both men and women, and it is to present themselves in such a way that their biblical headship is apparent. Because the head of every man is Christ, the head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And that headship is not something to put on and take off just when you walk into church on Sunday mornings. It's headship. I got to tell you a quick story. We went and visited uh, Sam and Kate, Julie and I did, and Jacob, uh, in uh, in the summer, and uh, we went to uh, we went to go to church on Sunday morning. I was really excited. I was really geeking out because uh, I wanted to I wanted to visit a, a kind of a, a, a church of the Dutch Reformed tradition, and this was kind of a big, well-known church with a well-known pastor, 
And I was really excited, and we were pulling into the parking lot. And as we're driving through, we have to pause because there are some elderly ladies walking across, and they had hats on. And then I saw more of them as I looked up ahead. I was like, it's like it's, it's, like it's Easter Sunday. I said that out loud. It's like it's Easter Sunday. We, we made our way past them, and there were, there were younger ladies in their 30s walking in with hats on. Little white, floppy, little wispy things, but hats. And, and then there were little girls, like, like three- and four-year-old girls toddling across the parking lot with their hats on or carrying them in their hand and waving them in the breeze. <laughs> and I pull into a parking spot, and Julia's just like, no. <laughs> no. I am the only woman here who does not have a hat. And I'm like, well, yeah, well, I, yeah, I don't see the big deal. I, there are a bunch of people that don't have hats on. Well, they were carrying them. By the time they got to the door, they put them on. Which I think is kind of an interesting application if, if, if this is a likely scripture that, that the headship begins at the door of the church kind of in, in, a, in a ceremonial perhaps kind of a way. Uh, but that seemed to be the tradition of their church. Um, smartphones are wonderful. Found a Baptist church a few miles away and, uh, and we went there and worshipped. It's just too traumatic. It's just too traumatic. When we get to this point, when we get to the end of this passage, and there, and there, there are so many things, you, you know they kind of weave in and out, weave in and out, and I tried to kind of pluck them out so we could see them clearly. But if we take this whole passage cumulatively, by the time we get to the bottom, there's something else happening in the church that's a problem. There's a blurring, not only of roles, but of gender itself. It's not intended, but it's there. It's the result of something else. These few women who are asserting themselves and taking on men's roles, which is what tends to happen when men don't fulfill their roles, they were causing confusion. They were bringing confusion to the worship service. It was, none, it was not intended, but it was, it was to be expected. When you refuse to submit right to rightful headship and dishonor Christ and dishonor yourself, expect disorder and chaos. Don't expect clarity and good things. Expect confusion. And that was the seed being sown here. These women set aside their head coverings in an act of independence. They were not loose women. They were not asking men to proposition them. Paul does not address sexual immorality with them in any way. That's not what this was. But that cultural perception was an unintended consequence. Not wearing a head covering communicated that in this culture. And taken cumulatively again, Paul's answer also expands beyond grounding headship in the Trinity and in grounding headship to, or gender rather, to the Trinity and in creation and in the gospel and in the culture. This passage, Paul's arguments that we have been following, are God's arguments against transgenderism. He looks at the culture and what people do and what they say and how that's perceived. If a man wears long hair like a woman, according to the culture's perception, he disgraces himself. And if a woman wears short hair like a man, according to the culture's perception, she disgraces herself. Paul's highlighting the problem when gender lines are blurred. 
for clarity. I'm not saying that Paul is addressing so-called transgendered persons in the church in Corinth. He's not. I am saying that Paul's arguments here in the Corinthian situation is a biblical argument against transgenderism. Paul is clear that gender is a distinct matter. Men should be distinctly men. Women should be distinctly women. Men are to be men and women are to be women in the church and in the church gathering. Theologically, we're created in the image of God, male and female. And we are to bear witness to his likeness, male and female. It's a deception rather than the truth for a man to believe himself to be a woman or for him to represent himself as a woman to others. He dishonors himself and he dishonors God. He brings shame upon himself. And he generates disorder and chaos for everyone around him. And the same would be true for a woman. Not only is it dishonoring to not represent your God-given headship, but it is dishonoring to not represent your God-given gender. God made men and calls them to be manly in their service to God and their worship to the church. God made women and calls them to be womanly in their service to God and their worship in the church. And this is inextricably racked up with our cultural communication. Long hair and short hair, dresses and pants communicate things. They even communicate things to yourself. Come on. When you get dressed in the morning and when you post a picture of yourself on Instagram... You know what you intend to represent about yourself, and you expect others to get it. Paul's fighting against that gender blurring with this and says, Gender distinctions remain. They're glorious, they represent God. And gender roles remain. Now, I think we're finally ready to answer our last question. What? Another question? I thought we were done. No. It's the question you've all been waiting for. Are wives required to wear some type of head covering in the gathered church? I don't think so. And it's not just a matter of saying that Corinthian culture is not our culture, and so Paul's words aren't relevant to us. That doesn't work here. That's, that's not a hermeneutic. That's not a way to interpret Scripture. What I think works is that wives submit to the headship of their husbands and that that is to be apparent to all on Sunday morning and throughout the week. But there's an equally important question are wives, or women for that matter, permitted to wear head coverings to church? Of course they are. Of course they are. If wearing a head covering helps you to maintain your humility and your respect for your husband and represent your femininity, then by all means do so. And there is to be no contentiousness among the brothers and sisters in the church 
about it. Look at Paul's last verse. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice. Nor do the churches of God. So, embrace God's divine design for you, men. And embrace God's divine design for you, women. And reflect the glory of God in your gender and do not contend with Him. Wives, embrace your husband's headship. And husbands, embrace your responsibility as head. And do not be contentious in your marriage. Christian people, the church, is to reflect to the world the glory of God and the headship of Christ. And so we must be diligent to do that. And if you haven't submitted to the headship of Christ... I'm calling on you this morning to do it. Turn to Christ. Submit yourself to Him. He's the righteous judge who's willing to be your righteous Savior if you would humble yourself and submit to His authority and His headship. He will meet you right now in the midst of your sin and rebellion against Him as your Savior so that you do not meet Him in the midst of your rebellion and sin as your judge. Turn to Him. Join the congregation in respecting our headship to Christ and worship of Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for these words. Thank You for this teaching that Christ is our head. Thank You for upholding the one flesh relationship in marriage. Thank You for reminding us that we're to be living for others. That while we represent male and female, the glory of God, that, Lord, this matters to others and we're to be diligent to do so. Help us to serve others. Help us to not be contentious because that seems so attractive to us sometimes. Instead, purify our hearts, we pray. In Christ's name. Amen.